We're returning this morning to uh, the series that we started a little while ago in the book of 1 John. So we're coming into 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Remember, we've seen some some really wonderful themes uh, in this little letter. Uh, we've seen seen John drawing our attention to the uh, wonderful revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That revelation that he himself had seen. Remember, he opened there speaking of that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And that word of life is life, right? It's eternal life communicated through the work of Jesus Christ to his people. And so he's encouraging his uh, readers, and that would include us. Oh, he wasn't aware of us when he wrote. The Holy Spirit inspired him in such a way that his word speaks to us today, and God speaks in this word, uh, a word of encouragement and help and teaching to us. So we're going to pick up then at uh, 1 John chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 18 uh, through 29. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all were not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything... And is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It seems inevitable that every time there is, uh, there is cataclysmic upheaval in the world, uh, conflict that is uh, shaking the political order, 
and upsetting people that people immediately start talking about the last days and Antichrist. And that's, uh, that's certainly the case even today uh, with uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. I've already read people talking about this as a sign of the end times and uh, postulating who the Antichrist is going to be. So, interestingly, this, uh, this passage has a particular relevance uh, for us in that way. But I, but I want us to... I want us to try to put aside a lot of what you hear about the end times and Antichrist because there is a lot of foolishness out there about it, okay? Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember, uh, remember hearing preachers talk about the end of the world as if it's coming. Uh, in fact, in, uh, I remember when I was in college or in seminary, uh, somebody came out with a pamphlet that they were uh, posting around Boston, uh, something like uh, 89 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming Again in 1989. <laughs> that the problem with, with all those theories is they're usually looking at the world. Okay? And if we really want to understand these topics... We need to look at scripture much more than we look at the world. Uh, so let's let John teach us uh, this morning. And, and I think we'll find that uh, there's a great deal more rele relevance uh, in our lives, to us in our lives in this passage than we might have imagined. First, before we get into the passage, notice, notice the tender address that, uh, that John makes to his readers here. Children, children. We've seen him use that term earlier, just up a few verses. If you let your eyes uh, go up, you can see in verse 13, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. It's interesting how often this imagery of a father speaking to his children uh, shows up in, in this little letter of John. And you noticed at the end of our text, it shows up again. Uh, little children, he says. And so, so I, I want you to receive this word a, as if it were from a loving father, okay? A loving father. Uh, as indeed it is, isn't it? Okay. God's word comes from a loving father to his beloved children. Don't ever forget that. Okay, if, if you've been brought to faith in Christ, then God is tenderly speaking to you through his word. And I hope you listen, listen for it. Um, well, what does John want to talk about the, with these children that he loves? Well, he says right away in our, in our text there in verse 18, it is the last hour. The last hour. We, we need to realize that this term, hour, is used in different ways uh, in Scripture. Uh, John is writing in a culture that is far less obsessed about time uh, than we are. Nobody's wearing a watch. Nobody has clocks on their walls. Okay, So, so when they speak of time, they're naturally going to speak of it differently than we do. I mean, this term can be used to 
to specify a time uh, in, in Hebrew and Roman, uh, Roman culture. They divided the daylight hours and the nighttime hours into 12 hours each. Naturally, that means then that they vary slightly uh, according to the seasons. And they divided them by what they called hours, but when they say hours, they weren't thinking necessarily of 60 minutes, just an approximate time. Now, now you, can, you can know whether they're using this term hour of a specific time by just noting, does it have a number attached to it? Okay, so for instance, in Mark 15, chapter 33, I mean verse 33, uh, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. This is taking place during Jesus' crucifixion. And, and since the period of daylight is divided into 12 hours by their reckoning, the sixth hour would indicate midday or noon. And the ninth hour would be mid-afternoon, approximately. Uh, Peter uses a specific time like this when he's... Uh, giving his first public sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And he says it is only the third hour of the day. So third hour would indicate mid-morning. Uh, sometimes hour is used to designate a, a specific but undesignated time. For instance, Matthew chapter 8, uh, which we looked at some time ago, Jesus says to the centurion, who has asked him to, to heal his servant who is back home. Jesus says to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the text says, and the servant was healed at that hour. And many of our translations put it something like the ESV says, at that very moment. Okay, Because what's being conveyed there is not that when Jesus said that, then over the period of the next 60 minutes, the servant was healed. Now, what it means is that when Jesus spoke it, it was done immediately. Uh, there's a similar terminology used in Matthew 9, when uh, the woman is healed, he touches the hem of, of Jesus' robe. Uh, again, the meaning isn't that the healing of the woman takes 60 minutes when it says it happened at that hour. It means that it happened right away. Sometimes it can be used in the sense of Matthew chapter 10 that we looked at not too long ago, Matthew 10, 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So that means, of course, at that specific time. Okay, it doesn't mean that 60 minutes after you need it, the Lord's going to give you, no, he's going to give you the words right then. Uh, Jesus uses it in this sense when he's speaking to the woman at the well. You remember the Samaritan woman, and Jesus says, The hour is coming, and now is, when those who worship will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Now, what he's saying there is that it's not that the, the hour hand on the clock has reached a certain time. He's, he's saying there is a, a moment in history has arrived. In the past, it was of concern. Remember, they were talking about where do you worship? And the woman says, do we worship in Jerusalem like you Jews say? Or do we worship on Mount Gerizim like we Samaritans do? And Jesus is, in a sense, saying that's not the issue anymore. Okay? 
The time has come when it's not a geographic location that matters about worship. It's the heart. Do you worship the Lord in the spirit and in truth? And of course, he's saying, in effect, with my coming, the old age where worship was confined to the temple in Jerusalem has ended, has ended, and a new age has come. In this sense, uh, we could say that the apostles using our and our text, the way Jesus used it there. Okay, he's, he's not saying that human history is going to end in 60 minutes. Okay, it's not that he's writing this and thinks in one hour everything's going to end and somehow he was wrong. That, that's not what he's saying. He's saying the church is living in the final phase of human history. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he means God has accomplished everything for the salvation of his people with the coming the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. There, there is no coming revelation to come. Okay? This is why we'd have to say that our, our Mormon friends are dead wrong. Okay? They advertise the Book of Mormon as a second testament of Jesus Christ. Nope. Nope. Jesus, John has said it's right here. We're in the last hour now. There's not going to be another prophet. Okay? Like the... Islam says there's not going to be a, a, another prophet after Jesus. This is the last hour. And that's why over and over again in the New Testament, the apostles and the apostolic witness is be ready. Be ready. So that's what he's saying. Peter says a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 1. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. Okay, think here he's saying. Set your hope fully on the grace which would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has been made manifest in the last times. Using a slightly different expression there from the one John's got. For the sake of you who through him are believers in God. Do you see what he's saying there? We're in the last times. The next thing to come is the final revelation of Jesus Christ. His coming again. That's what he's saying. Paul uses the word later to convey the same idea when he's writing to Timothy. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some would depart from the faith, and he goes on to describe conditions existing at that time that Timothy needed to be aware of. Hebrews puts it this way in the very opening verses. Long ago, many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Okay, that's the past. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We could go on and look at other examples, but you, you, you get the idea. Okay, John's saying, this is the last hour, and I want you to be aware of something that is true about this period of time. And this is where he brings in this idea of Antichrist. Notice the uh, use of it there in verse 14, I mean 18, that associates Antichrist with the last hour. Antichrist to come, he says, and many Antichrists already here. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. The two go hand in hand, he's saying. The two go hand in hand. I want you to be aware of this, he's saying. Now, now we, we could... 
digress somewhat and, and talk about, well, who might Antichrist singular, notice John uses that in verse 18, Antichrist singular is coming. We could digress a little bit and, and ask, well, maybe is that the same same identity, the same figure that Paul's talking about in Thessalonians when he talks about the man of lawlessness? Uh, is this the same figure that's talked about uh, by John himself in, Re in the Revelation, where he says that there is a second beast which has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon? You see, see how it's a pseudo-Christ there, okay? Externally, superficially, it looks like Christ. The lamb is the figure uh, in, in Revelation for Christ, and so when he says it has two horns like a lamb, gives the appearance of Christ, but it speaks like a dragon. Dragon is Satan, okay? So it could be, an, some people argue that that's the Antichrist, the false, false Christ there. Now, that doesn't seem to be the point of our text, though. It doesn't seem like John is primarily talking about this to, to help his readers identify who that figure might be. So, so let's let Let's let John speak himself to this issue of Antichrist and Antichrist plural. John is the only person, the only writer in the New Testament, actually, who uses this term. It doesn't show up anywhere else except in 1 John and 2 John. And so we want to look to him as our authority and try to understand what it is that he's emphasizing here for our attention. So let's do that. Uh, by sort of digressing a little bit from our text, and I want to I want to read all the texts where John uses these terms. The first, of course, is is in our in our text, verses eighteen and nineteen. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. And then verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now the third time he shows up is in chapter 4. So you can go down to chapter 4, 1 John, first six verses. Here's what he says. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And the fourth time, the last time it shows up, is in the little book of Second John, which is so small it's not even divided into chapters. So in Second John, 
verses 4 through 11, we read the following. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, put it, let's put those together. What does the apostle tell us about these that he calls antichrists, plural? Well, first, we've already noted, their presence is to be expected in this time. This isn't something that has somehow caught God off guard. Okay, he, he, is, he is aware of this and he's letting us know about it. We do expect figures like this during the period of the church age until Jesus comes again. Second, and perhaps this is more striking to us, it, at least it struck me when I first realized this. Notice, these antichrists left the church. You catch that? They were in the church, but they've left. And, and John says, I want you to realize that even though they were in the church, they never were really of the church. You catch that? Look at that again in verse 19. They went out from us. These were, in some cases, people they knew. Okay? They went out from us, but they were not of us. They did not belong with us. That's, that's disturbing on some level, isn't it? That there could be those who go by the name of Christian who evidently are teachers and leaders in the church by implication of some other things he says here. And in fact, they are antichrist. They are against Christ. Or if you take the other meaning of anti here, they set themselves up in place of Christ. Jesus taught very plainly that the church was going to be made up, the visible church, the church in terms of people that meet together on a Sunday morning. There are un-Christians un there. There are antichrist there. You need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of that. There are hundreds 
of church buildings in New England where Christ is no longer found. He's no longer preached. Now, I put a lot of the blame on that, and I've said this before, I know. I put a lot of blame on the, for that on the, the men who stood in the pulpits. Okay? They deviated from the plain message of Christ. They deviated from the gospel. But you have to know that those congregations that put up with that are responsible too. I, I, I would tremble to be in the place of someone who preached in a pulpit and did not clearly preach the gospel because they're going to answer before God for that. And God cares about his flock. But you, you have a responsibility too. You need to make sure that the people whom you sit under in terms of teaching are not antichrist. They have not left the gospel. And let me be real blunt and say that applies to who you listen to on the radio and who you watch on the internet and who you watch on TV as well. You remember Peter said in his letter, I want you to have your minds working. <laughs> okay. Too much of the time, I'm afraid, people walk in a church door and they sort of turn their mind off. They think it's all about getting a feeling. Okay, I'm looking for an emotional state. I, I, I'm looking, well, maybe I'm just looking for a little bit of peace and quiet because my life's so noisy all the rest of the week. <laughs> and don't turn off your brain. Okay. Examine every word I say by scripture. Who said I was infallible? Who said I'm always right? Scripture doesn't say it. So you need to be discerning. You need to use your minds. These antichrists came out of the church. But notice the second part of that. They never really belonged. They never really belonged. They were wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves in sheep's clothing. But when you see, when you recognize someone like this who... who professed a faith and, and seemed even to be a gifted communicator of the faith and, and now has left all that, be assured that they were not really of the church. Now, I'm not saying that, that someone can't fall away and repent and come back. Okay? That's not what I'm saying at all. Okay, David sinned grievously against the Lord and against other people. And he was brought to repentance and restored. But someone who is an antichrist leaves and doesn't come back. And that's because they were not truly of the church. If you don't believe me, then listen to Paul's warning in Acts 20. He's talking to a bunch of elders, the church leaders, the, from the city of Ephesus. Okay, they've come down to the coast, to the city where he's at, so he can speak to them. 
he knows this is probably the last time he's ever going to see them. As far as we know, he, he may well have been right. And so it, his words are very earnest. Okay? And one of the important things he says is, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he has obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now listen to this. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Can you imagine being one of those elders sitting there? And hearing those words, I would think the hair on the back of your neck would stand up and you'd think, it could be this guy. God forbid it could be me. Okay? This is a very serious warning. The worst enemies of the church have been those who seemed to be in it but did not really belong there. They were not of us, he said. How does he know that? Well, he goes on to say in verse 19, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That little word continued there, that, that's the same word as translated abide later on. That, that's a key concept in this passage. Oh, we're not going to get to it. I don't think I'm going to have to leave it till next time. But just note that. So their presence is to be expected. They left the church, but they were never really part of the church. How do you recognize them? How do you recognize them? John tells us exactly, exactly. He says, you recognize them because they deny that Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ. Remember, the Christ means anointed one. It's the same as Messiah in Hebrew. They deny that Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ. And notice what he says in verse 22. They deny the Father when they deny the Son. Okay. They, in denying that Jesus is the anointed one, they're denying the Father at the same time. Jesus made that point very plain in his teaching, right? We don't have time to go look at that. But over and over again, he said... If you, if you won't accept me, who you're really rejecting is, is God, my Father. So test their message. Look at that passage in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's identifying them also as false prophets there, right? They act as though they're prophets, but they're false prophets. Test them. What's the test? Here it is, a couple of verses later. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This must be important because it's the second time he's, he's repeated that, right? This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. The essence of the Antichrist is one who does not confess that Jesus is from God. 
Rather, they, they parrot the world's thinking, right? They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. He repeats the same idea in 2 John, in that fourth instance where he uses the expression. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now he's identifying them as deceivers, okay? It's bad enough if you have wrong beliefs yourself, but if you're seeking to deceive others, and how much worse is that? Many deceivers have gone out into the world. And remember, these are people that, that used to be in the church, according to our text. And how do you identify with them? Well, here it is again. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And, of course, that's the essence of what it means for Jesus to be the anointed one. And, again, we don't have time to delve into all the texts that would affirm that, but you know that truth. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Test what you hear. Test what you hear. Now, I don't want you to leave under a cloud of fear. <laughs> okay. I, 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 don't, I don't want you to develop a, a sense of suspicion against everyone. Okay, that's, that's not my intent. So I want, you, I want you to realize that there's a great message of encouragement here as well. We'll have to get into it more fully, the encouragement side, next, next time that I preach from this passage. Uh, but just before, before I conclude, I want you to get a foretaste of that. Look at verse 20. But, but, okay, here's, here's this woeful situation where there are people, even from among church, that actually turn and become deceivers. They're antichrist. But, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. And we're going to unpack that some more. But, but I, want to, I want to affirm very strongly at this point. The Holy Spirit doesn't lose people. The Holy Spirit doesn't lose people. If the Holy Spirit has, has caused you, as Jesus says in John 3, to be born again, remember his words to Nicodemus, compared it to the wind blowing, you don't really see it. He says, that's the way it is with the Spirit. He causes people to be born again. And the Holy Spirit doesn't bring someone new life doesn't cause them to be born again and then lose them. That simply cannot happen. So this text is not telling us that those who have truly been converted ever fall away. Now, now again, I'm not saying that they're perfect. Okay? Christians can sin grievously. Okay? but they will never fall away permanently. 
the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is never withdrawn. He never loses those who are his own. And notice the second part of that. You all have knowledge. He's going to repeat that theme later on, and we'll have to be careful to unpack that correctly. But what I want you to, to see in that text right now is you have been brought to know the truth. If you have responded to the gospel, if the Lord has opened your mind to see the incredible good news that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners and bring them into his kingdom and clothe them in his righteousness, if, that, if you have been given that truth, you have the knowledge. You have all the wisdom you need. Now, I'm not saying that, that you don't want to grow in your understanding. One of the delights of being a believer is coming to understand more and more of his word. But I think what John is saying right here is you have the Spirit's anointing and you've been given the truth. That, that truth that he has been affirming in, in the very opening of the letter. You've been given the truth. Cling to that truth. Cling to that truth. Satan desires to have you doubt that truth. Don't let him make you do that. Okay. You have the truth. Do, do you realize what an incredible thing that is? That, that your mind and heart has been opened to see the truth of the gospel? That his Holy Spirit has, has caused you to be born again? I'm telling you, you don't need anything else, right? You don't need anything else. That's why the church ultimately is indestructible. Indestructible. They may kill us as individuals. They'll never kill the church. Just not possible. In fact, we're on the winning side. It is the world that is perishing. It is the world that is destroying itself and headed for hell. But you've been given the gospel Holy Spirit is awakened in you faith. That is such a precious thing, right? And no wonder we're told that's good news to share with other people. Because the Lord will not only, not only desires to protect you from this false teaching, but also to use you to promote the right teaching and to put that gospel out there that the Holy Spirit will use to bring others into faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your truth. We didn't come up with it. Okay, there's... Well, in a lot of ways, it's an unbelievable reality. I mean, what human being could think up 
a God like you, one who is holy and righteous and yet forgiving and gracious in Jesus Christ, one who cannot abide sin and yet took our sin upon himself so that we might be redeemed. Lord, thank you for that that saving work which you've done in our lives. And we pray that you would continue that work in us. Help us to help us to live more fully in obedience to these truths. And and we pray that you would that you would use the witness of your church to bring many others into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.